Hi everybody. Welcome to Emmaus Way on a beautiful Sunday night in spring. It is Mother's Day. All of that carries with you. This is a song called Mission of My Soul that we've done a bunch in the past. It's probably been a little while since we did it, but this is the one. Seems like a good Peter Himmelman day. 
Actually, in my world, it's always a good Peter Himmelman day, so thank you. Hey, welcome to Emmaus Way. I'm Tim. It's good to see all of you guys here this uh, evening. I realize today is Mother's Day, so it's a day of celebration. We've all uh, also probably a day when we spend some energy negotiating our, our origins, our relationships with those that have brought us into this life, and, uh, and uh, we're excited here as a church because we do have many small people that we like a whole bunch, so welcome to Emmaus Way. Uh, this is our part of the liturgy that you guys lead, and you guys do this so well every week, so you guys want to get us started, Joel? Are you the, the man to get our liturgy started? Our part, all by the way, is in bold, and uh, just we'll join in appropriately. He is risen indeed. He is risen indeed. He is risen indeed. Thank you guys so much. I guess this is the last Sunday of Easter, right? In the liturgical calendar. So that was our Easter prayer. So, um, well, hey, welcome, everybody. Um, I, today, by the way, also was graduation day at Duke and at UNC. So people who are excited about graduates, uh, I was out there in the hot sun uh, in Keenan Stadium today with a graduate listening to, tell you what, I'm going to be even more excited about Kate Baldwin on CNN. She did such an amazing job today uh, doing the address. I've heard lots of bad graduation addresses through the day. She did a really good one, uh, so she was fantastic. Uh, got a classmate of Dave Eferts, by the way. We had that proven. Is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, and also, I know our children's group had a couple of our workers graduate. Uh, isn't that correct? So. We're going to miss them. They were very faithful, I think, through their junior and senior years. Uh, Carolina for one, maybe Carolina for both. So uh, anyway, happy for this Sunday uh, with you guys. Is I'm looking for Mr. Teeson. Are you around? You have a, a, Dave Teeson is kind of our version of Mr. Cash around here. He's our, <laughs> our treasurer. And by the way, the, we pay him huge amounts of money to spend a massive amount of time to organize the finances of a group of about 75 people. Uh, and so uh, every day I kind of go to bed and I think, thank goodness, Dave Teeson is doing that, and I'm not. Uh, but number two, we're really, we're really thankful for what you do for us. It's a gift. Uh, yeah, so I just wanted to give you guys a quick update as we uh, head towards the end of our fiscal year. If you've been part of the community and church for a few years, you know our fiscal year ends on May 31st, not on December 31st, so it's not, it's not aligned with the calendar year. Um, so that means we have a few weeks to go as we close out our fiscal year. Um, your contributions, as you probably know, are, are huge um, aspects as we think about our budget for the upcoming year and helping us, uh, helping the lead team understand where we can set our budget. Um, so through this afternoon, we uh, have received contributions of around 96000 for this fiscal year, which is um, outstanding and just a huge thanks to you guys. It, uh, we as a community have been very intentional about forming our budget towards our, uh, the people who make this church exist. So about 85% of our budget goes to directly to individuals, either our staff um, up in front of you, uh, the guest artists who come in, and the children's workers in the back. Um, so we had budgeted this year of around 108,000 of contributions. We're at 96 as of this afternoon, like I said. So we have a few weeks left to keep pushing towards that 108,000 total. Um, there was an email sent out to the uh, church listserv earlier this week about some of the budget uh, uh, kind of 
breakdown and, and, and how we're kind of looking as we, uh, you know, close up this year. Um, so hopefully you had a chance to look at that. Um, I think kind of the, the uh, I guess my big takeaway as I was writing that is if we can get to 102,000 contributions this year, um, you know, we'll make some small changes to our budget, but nothing to our staff salary, which is always a huge um, kind of importance to our lead team to bring the budget together. So uh, about 6,000 to go to hit that amount. Um, so just huge thanks again to everybody who's been able to give this year. And I just encourage you as we close up the year, if you, you know, um, just think about what, what you, you know, support this community in financially. There's so many ways to support us through your time of volunteering, but uh, as, as a small church, um, you know, the dollars matter in our ability to be here and function and continue to pay our staff and all those people who come in to make this church exist the way that um, you know, I love and I think so many of us love it. Um, if you know, you're not aware how to give, we haven't given before, we have a metallic bowl out in the foyer. You can drop off donations in there through uh, the end of the month, as well as through our website, emmausway.net. If you go to the bottom of the website, there's a little dollar sign. You click on that, it's going to take you to a web portal where you can um, set up bank account or credit card donations. Uh, you can set up recurring donations or one-time, as well as... Uh, you can mail a check if you have your bank want to send a send a check. The web uh, the address the physical address to do that is different than the location here, and that's on the website as well. So, if you have any questions, uh, my email was on that email uh, that I got sent out. Um, please feel free to get in touch with me if you have any questions. Thank you, Mr. Teeson. Actually, Ben and Molly and I sat through a financial seminar uh, for community organizers uh, this week, and doing so made me incredibly thankful of uh, the people here at Emmaus Way and what they do, the lead team and folks that have kind of managed our finances. One of the big things that they had said is the whole idea of not doing kind of um, aspirational kind of Ouija board type of finances, but instead really, you know, basing your finances on basically the income of the community and the value of that. So many of the things that we do, like transparency, that are just important things that made me thankful most of all the work you guys do in that area. Um, next Sunday is an important Sunday for us. This is Ecclesia Sunday, which is our weekly, our, our quarterly, excuse me, our quarterly gathering. It's kind of our community conversation of life at Emmaus Way. It involves things like budgets and visions and dreams. And we've got stuff going on right now in terms of imagining life in a new space. Uh, so this is a really significant meeting for us because it's probably the, it'll probably be our last Ecclesia before the summer and move. Do you or Ben have anything else to add about, about that? I will talk about it because both of the people who actually run this meeting are not here at the moment. Um, but usually this, this means run by our lead team, our lay leadership, and our two lay leaders, Laura Wooten and Wendy will be presiding. And it's always kind of a community conversation for us, much more than a business meeting. Things that are on the table to talk about this time around are we have um, a move schedule. Pretty, it seems pretty... I think we're in, what, 99% now? Yeah, Hopefully. 90% plus percent that we're going to be meeting in a new space um, come, the, come the fall. So we have a, a lease starting August 1st at Calvary United Methodist Church um, on the sort of east side of downtown. Um, so yeah, we'll be talking about that move and all that entails. We'll be sort of hearing sort of close out kind of things around the budget year. And then the other thing is, as our staff has continued to evolve this year with Tim moving out of a PhD and, uh, you know, we're going to talk some about how that's evolved in this past year and how we're looking at the shape of that over the next, uh, particularly next year, but in the years to come. 
you've been around Emmaus Way, and not many have, but if you're around a long time, um, you will realize that almost every space change that we've had has been really significant in terms of our community life. And something dramatically was added as a part of that. Like, for example, moving to this space. I'm not sure how many kids we would have in this community in our old space, which was beautiful and perfect for uh, a group of 20-somethings and 30-somethings to worship in, but not so great for, for kids. And so every time we've moved, this will be our, what, third move one, two, fourth space, and, um, and each time something new and exciting and beautiful has happened in that. So uh, I think part of that meeting is to call you into that imagination. And tonight, um, we're excited about, uh, Molly's going to be wrapping up our kind of uh, resurrected life in kind of the Easter season, uh, Realized Resurrection uh, a series. And we've been talking about a range of things in terms of what does it mean to live in the present reality of Easter. And tonight, that conversation is going to focus very specifically. The question of the night is, if our imagination were resurrection-shaped, how might that change our mission in this world? And so uh, we're excited because that's kind of what we do as a community anyway, is we see ourselves gathering around the table and gathering around the dialogue as an act of collective imagination that translates into action and work for us. And so we're kind of excited to end tonight on that note. And Mark, we're really thankful for your leading us in our, uh, our worship this evening, and we'll turn it back over to you for our songs of preparation. Thank you, thank you, Tim. And Keenan graduated. Man, that is incredible. I remember when we used to meet in the loft above uh, Francesca's on Ninth Street. I was telling Tim this this week. Um, I don't know for those of you who, who were with us back then. That was ten years ago. But I remember every single week, every single week that uh, Keenan would come in from soccer, playing a soccer game, and I don't even how old would Keenan? I guess Keenan was. Yeah, so like he would, he would come in there hot and sweaty from soccer, and he would lie down on the front row and put his head in Tim's lap and fall asleep every single week. Every week that happened. It, it was I, I would always sit across the room, and it was always such a beautiful moment uh, for me uh, to see to see your son falling asleep in your arms. Tim, it was really cool. So this is a song uh, by Over the Rhine called Poughkeepsie. Uh, I think this song is, if we're talking about imagination, um, I think I was sort of thinking about what are some other words for imagination. And I think maybe maybe hope could be a different word for imagination in a way. Or maybe imagination could be a different way uh, to describe hope. So this song to me, even though it, it, it's sort of a story about someone um, feeling hopeless and then finding hope uh, in the middle of the song. I thought I'd go up, but Kipsey, look out, the Hudson and I'd throw my body down on the river, and I'd know no more sorrow, I'd fly like the sparrow. I ride on the backs of the angels tonight. I ride on the backs of the angels tonight. I take to the sky. 
So when, when Molly told me that this week was going to be about mission, I quickly just did like a, a search in my, um, my iTunes uh, library to see what came up with the mission. And this song came up because it's by a band called The Innocence Mission. Um, but it's a really great song. And so I thought, well, we've got to do this. So, so um, this is a, a great band. Um, husband and wife team and, and uh, there's a couple other people in the band too but they uh, they were active they're still recording and, and putting out some of the most just some of the loveliest uh, most insightful I, it's hard to even describe uh, the, the lead singer's vocal is just like wow she just has this incredibly emotive uh, vocal highly recommend their work uh, like I say they're still still recording today their first album came out in the late 80s um they're, they're fantastic. songs preparation and yes we are talking about mission tonight we're also talking about imagination 
and kind of when I was working on this um, this morning and even right before after I set up, I was like, I don't fully know that I talk about mission, but I think I might. So we're going to see, and I hope that you all will help me as we talk about mission. So it's on you to get to the mission part. Um, not really, but please pass the piece. Um, and this is how you know I'm not from, that I am from Tennessee, not from around here. Brandon Bain brought in the Tar Heel mascot cookies, which look fabulous if you can eat gluten. And my mom said, oh, are these for like the feet of Jesus? Because we're like about the mission of Christ. We are so, I'm so not from North Carolina, but go enjoy those cookies. Um, talk to someone that you haven't met before. Um, and we'll gather back in just a moment. They are, they're the exact same thing. You know, they are. I think some people think that it, they are. I have learned that since moving here. So yeah, go pass the piece and we'll gather back in just a moment. So for the past three weeks, um, for those of us, for those of you that have been with us, um, and for those of you who haven't, um, we've been dialoguing about realized resurrection. That's kind of been our Easter tide theme and what that means for the here and now. Um, we've been leaning into Jürgen Moltmann's assertion that believing in the resurrection does not just mean assenting to a dogma and noting a historical fact, but rather it means participating in this creative act of God's. And I just love that. Realize resurrection means participating in this creative act of God's. And as Tim dialogued with us last week, and did such a beautiful job, Tim and Mark together, As a realized, resurrected people, we do feel and experience deep sorrow, but if we believe in a realized resurrection, that sorrow has the possibility to turn to gratitude, even if that turning seems nonsensical. For as a realized, resurrected people, we proclaim and see life conquering death, hope in the deepest moments of despair, It's just that I think sometimes our imaginations might be too limited for us to see it. But believing in a realized resurrection means believing that that event, Jesus overcoming death, being raised to life, that moment changed and continues to change everything. And it means that somehow from deep within ourselves, we must be ever open to change as we more fully broaden our imagination of what a realized resurrection might actually encompass. Because I think as a realized resurrected people, it's hard to say seven times fast, we have the opportunity and the invitation to be opened to a wide imagination for what the world could be. And as we'll see from today's text, I think that it's that very invitation that Jesus offers us. The invitation for a wider imagination of what the world could be and how we, as people believing in the kingdom of God, what our role is within that. Um, So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. But first, would someone read our lectionary text for today? John 14, 1 through 17. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not then believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do and, in fact, will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, because he abides with you, and he will be in you. Thanks so much, Elizabeth. I think Rowan already likes the spirit of the Lord. Um, which is really sweet. But I think in this portion of the farewell discourse, that's where we kind of are in John right now, this portion of the farewell discourse, Jesus, like I said, in my opinion, was pushing his disciples to have a wider imagination as he was about to leave them. He wanted them to be open to see new possibilities, what their mission could be, what their work could be and should be about as they continued to bring in the kingdom of God. But they didn't quite get it. And I mean, I don't even really blame them, right? Because let's face it, I think it would be hard to take heart and to not be troubled when to the disciples, the Roman Empire was continually pressing in on them. Yet that's what Christ encouraged them to do in this text. And it seems a bit silly to know the way of Jesus and where he was going when Thomas so obviously reminds him, "Um, excuse me, we actually have no clue where you are going. How are we to know the way? And then Philip, just ask a simple thing, probably for him as he's wanting and hoping, trying to live into and being earnest about having a deeper imagination. He just wants to see the Father ever so slightly to help him. But then Jesus goes on and on about how Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in him. 
And then into this confusion, Jesus proclaims and has the audacity to tell them, and you, you will do even greater works than these. Because I'm still going to be with you. But you yourselves will do even greater works than these. With Christ as co-worker, co-creator alongside the disciples. And because Christ was going to send the Spirit, the advocate to them, to be about the mission. And that's just a lot to handle, I think, in one single discourse. That doesn't offer a lot of explanation. I think it just offers a lot of confusion in many regards. And yet it's into this very stuff that doesn't make sense, that's really complicated, what some might even call unimaginable. I'm sure the disciples are thinking, how are we to do even greater works than you? That we as a people of God, a people believing in a realized resurrection, are invited to walk toward and be about. And yet it's so hard, right? It's so hard because like the disciples more often than not, I think we're filled with self-doubt. I really think that's what the disciples probably were feeling. I know I would. Wondering if we could actually be about the kingdom of God without Jesus there in such a way that it mattered and would make a difference. And I think it's so hard too, right? Because we're so bad about having open imaginations full of possibility about what the mission and the work of the kingdom could really look like and entail especially when all around us, we primarily just see despair. Almost five years ago now, um, elsewhere, a living museum in a three-story former thrift store in Greensboro, North Carolina, deeply shifted my understanding of imagination, of what imaginative possibilities could be, especially when it comes to the kingdom of God. So George, the founder and my friend who created this brilliant and bedazzling and kind of crazy art museum, says this of Elsewhere and why they exist. Elsewhere derives its imagination from what's at hand. Instead of seeing the world in terms of what we would like to see, we imagine a world from what it is seen differently. More creative discoveries can be made along the edges of the boundaries of our material world than from an ideal, roughly approximate white cube or blank slate. What George and his friends imagined and continue to imagine every day and elsewhere is what we as persons believing in a realized resurrection must do. I think we must take a look at our creation, our systems, our churches, our neighbors, our forgotten, our beloved, our oppressed, see them, and recognize that if we were to imagine differently, we might allow ourselves to dream of creative discoveries that can be made alongside the edges of what already exists within the very spaces and places of despair And it's in those spaces and places, if we were to imagine, that we might be about the mission of God. And if you think about it, the resurrection itself came out of the edges of the boundaries of the deepest despair. 
rather than coming from a clean white blank slate or a perfect cube. But I'm curious to hear from you all. We know that there is no blank slate in our world. It takes like 30 seconds on Twitter or like a half hour reading the news or just walking around town. But I'm curious what you all think is our starting point of imagination for us today. What are the positives, the negatives, what's overwhelming, daunting? What are even the hope-filled things in our world that are the starting point for our imagination and what our mission might be within that? Or perhaps, if you prefer the negative, what in our world is keeping you from thinking about that? Yeah, Jim. So I just came back from a trip. I was in Southern Africa, a number of different countries. My last stop was in Cape Town. And um, this is a story that Andrew would tell better than me, but here I go, my used to telling it. So you go to him for details about the, the history of all these things I'm about to say. <laughs> um, but the, the first place Andrew told me to visit in Cape Town was a slave lodge. Um, Cape Town was a... Uh, I can't go into all the history, but they imported slaves to Africa. So they had a lodge where they would house and sell all these slaves. And right next to the slave lodge is a church. Dutch Reformed Church. They coexisted. I've seen this elsewhere. Um, there's a slave fort up in Ghana where the church is inside the slave fort. And it just boggles my mind how, how they could do that and what their imagination was that led them to be there. Now, in Cape Town, there on one side is this Dutch Reformed church and the slave lodge, but literally the stones throw away is another church, which is Desmond Tutu's church. A very different imagination, very different vision. And so then my thought says, well, how did these such different visions that both claim a Christian foundation, how did they come about and be so different? I don't have, a, a, I don't think I have a really great answer, but I have just a little sliver of thought that it comes from the community you hang out with. And the, the people you rub shoulders with and the vision that, that you share with others. Um, and that leads me to, to, to say to your question of a small thing, a starting place. I would say this community where I learn from all of you and I hear your stories of struggle and overcoming and that gives me courage to imagine something different. Great. Thanks so much, Jim. What are others? What's, what's the starting point? For you. Yeah, Andrew? So, I'll be very brief. Part of the history of the Anglican Church in, in South Africa, um, which is the church which eventually elected uh, Bishop Tutu to be the Archbishop, and he then went on to challenge apartheid in a number of important ways, and to head up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And part of its much deeper history is um, one of the earlier figures was a man who became Bishop, um, who was from England 
called, his last name was Kalenta. And when he came to South Africa, he was guided by uh, the, son, the son of missionaries, a guy whose his last name was Shepston. And Shepston was the son of missionaries and chose the path of um, racism, basically. Although Colenso was new to Africa, he chose a different path. He set up a press to translate um, Bibles into Zulu. In the end, it produced a whole lot of additional literature. Um, a lot of, almost all the early written work in Zulu was, came out of his press, which he, you know, he wasn't doing the work himself. He, he, he got um, a lot of people to do the translation and kind of put his imprinter on it so that it would be accepted. And so, yeah, he was still a, a white man in a church which was controlled by white people. But he chose a different path, which ended, or the name, but culminated in um, having somebody like Bishop Tutu in charge. And Shepston, who had a, this, he had a great heritage, his parents were missionaries, chose a different path. Colenso couldn't get to having a black bishop in his lifetime, but he planted great seeds. Yeah. So being able yeah. to imagine and think of what can be. Yeah, thanks so much. Others? What do you think? What's your starting point for our imagination in this world? Despair is not the last word. Despair is not the last word. Thanks. Be thinking about that. We're going to come back to that in just a little bit. SK, yeah. Sure. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot with regard to where our country is headed mm-hmm. and where the sources of imagination come from for that. And I think for me, it is from reality. It's from the world that we're living in right now, not a world that existed at another time. Because in order to get back another time, it requires violence. It requires incredible acts of violence to do that. But... So for me, it's the question of how do you make what is beautiful? How do you make what is beautiful? Yeah. I think that's at the heart of mission. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded of this. Uh, there was this uh, this really cool open community art project that happened for 48 hours on the internet. And what they would do is they would give... Um, any engineer who wanted it, one pixel per five minutes mm-hmm. on a canvas. Uh, and then for 48 hours, they just said, let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really fun to watch the time lapse of what happens with this, because you can only make, uh, you can only make like anything if you can get your friends to participate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think like to the, to bring it to mission. I feel like that's, 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 that's kind of how we can work towards a blank canvas, um, is figuring out like, um, how do we, um, so, so, so the, the, the interesting dynamic that you see play out over this piece of artwork over 48 hours is like, it gets completely changed and changed and rewritten and rewritten. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you see, you know, like these, like somebody decides they want to put the Mona Lisa on it, mm-hmm. and enough people say, like, yeah, I want to participate in that portion of the canvas. Mm-hmm. 
And so, like, the Mona Lisa, like, shows up on a piece, like, doesn't take over the whole canvas, and the Canadian flag shows up. But it's really, like, it's, 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 kind of, it's kind of fun to watch, and it's like, like, how much does it take before we've got a seed of a thing that the community says, like, oh, yeah. I can do that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in for that. I'm in for that. I love that. Thanks. So in her book, Holy the Firm, Annie Dillard writes, There is no one but us. There is no one to send, nor a clean hand, nor a pure heart on the face of the earth, but only us. A generation comforting ourselves with the notion that we have come at an awkward time, that our innocent ancestors are all dead and our children are busy and troubled and we ourselves unfit, not yet ready, having each of us chosen wrongly, made a false start, failed, yielded to pressure, and grown exhausted. But there is no one but us. There have been generations which remembered and generations which forgot, yet some have imagined well. One who imagined well... I think, was Julia Ward Howe. Does anybody know about Julia Ward Howe? Who in 1870, she was like the originator of like Mother's Day, but badass Mother's Day. Like labor movement kind of Mother's Day. And she wrote a proclamation in 1870 in her own impassioned, powerful words, the goal of what she wanted Mother's Day to be about. The mission and possibility for women far from how we understand the beautiful yet often complicated holiday we celebrate now. And Ward Howe proclaimed, Arise, in 1870, mind you, this just blows my mind. Arise, all women who have hearts, whether your baptism be that of water or of tears. Say firmly, we will not have great questions decided by irrelevant agencies. Our husbands shall not come to us reeking with carnage for caress and applause. As men have often forsaken the plow and the anvil at the summons of war, let women now leave all that may be left of home for a great and earnest day of counsel. Let them meet first as women to bewail and commemorate the dead. Let them then solemnly take counsel with each other as to the means whereby the great human family can live in peace, each learning after her own time the sacred impress, not of Caesar, but of God. In the name of womanhood and of humanity, I earnestly ask that a general congress of women without limit of nationality may be appointed to promote the alliance of different nationalities the amicable settlement of international questions, the great and general interests of peace. To me, Julia Ward Howe imagined well about what a different kind of mission in the world might be for women. And they were coming together because she believed that it would be the women that could bring peace and stop war. That was her hope. And so I'm curious, as we continue to build on imagination and imagining well and wondering where can we bring or create beauty out of what exists, how might that change our mission in the world? If our imagination really were 
resurrection shaped. How might that change our mission in the world? Uh, cookie feet <laughs> that I said earlier, the Blue Tar Hill, and I was saying the Tennessee way of um, we are the feet of Christ. Um, I think using our imagination and truly believing that where we walk, what we do and where we walk and what we do with our hands, we really do matter and we make a difference. And it's only as far as what we're willing to imagine that that we can can do not by my strength, but within the strength of God within me, can do and imagine and not be afraid to try. Because often, right, maybe it's our self-doubt or our skepticism or name X, Y, or Z thing that keeps us from moving in this world or being in this world in ways that do and can make a difference. Yeah. Thanks, Mom. Who else? Yeah, Christine. Um. I think one of the things that keeps striking me is verse 15, which says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Yeah. And I'm struck by how um, how I've received a different narrative mm-hmm. that says, if you keep my commandments, I will love you. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't say that. Yeah. And I mean, and, and obviously that's not ever what I've read in this text, but it's just like, I feel like that's so much of how I hear spiritual practice talked about in, in a Christian context in this country, that there's this incredible focus on keeping commandments in order to avoid punishment and then perhaps condition like love from God, and it just strikes me that um, that I feel like that's the that's sort of the religious imagination um, that I think I often hear in public or on the media, and and it just feels really important that um, that that's not that the the narrative of love in here is a first love that is not conditioned. Yeah. Um, and that it is that that is the source of don't let your hearts be troubled. Yeah. I know there are things that seem that are really troubling, um, and you don't have to do something to be in my father's house, yeah. right? It, it just that feels like it changes everything. What, yeah, it just changes even what mission means yeah. if it's not about keeping some commandments in order to condition a positive response from a really angry man. Yeah. No, for sure, right? And it's just, I just think about like, kind of realize resurrection and love and what we were saying of how just like love bursts forth and it's out of this recognition of love and freedom that like we, it's not because we have to or we're going to be like, you know, in deep trouble, but it's like, why wouldn't we want to be about love and grace and hope? And changing of systems in a world when, yeah, there's not some angry man yelling at us to do it, right? It's this really liberative love. Thanks, Christine.
others. Okay. I was thinking too that the casualty of an absence of imagination is the belief in something being transformed or turned in a redemptive direction. And I think that um, I was thinking about kind of the the red dirt fundamentalism that I grew up in that I talk about a lot. And salvation, it's what SK said, was always backwards, mm-hmm. right? Even though the hope was eschatological, it was always going back to something, mm-hmm. protecting something, holding on to something. And the real casualty to that, again, is that even the imagination of something new was always transgressive. And so, uh, you know, that's to me part of resurrection, as we've talked about this a lot, is this, this utter, however one understands it theologically, this radical change in circumstance that was unforeseeable in the moment of Jesus' death. Thanks so much, Tim. Any other thoughts? believe, shocker, that the idea of this text, of imagining well and having the freedom to imagine well and to imagine differently, was what Jesus was getting at here. I think he was inviting us to believe in the realized resurrection in such a way that it completely shapes and reshapes how we might engage and live into the mission in the world even when it seems daunting or we aren't fully sure where to begin. Because the thing is, Jesus knew he was leaving, right? Like this is the farewell discourse before the cross, before the resurrection. He knew his time was leaving, was coming up. And he had to be aware that he was leaving his 12 beloved disciples in a world where the kingdom of God was not yet fully realized. And yet he offered an invitation that they could imagine well and could be, continue to be about the mission of God. And here we are in 2017, in a year for many of us that feels especially daunting and weighty, without the 12 disciples or Jesus right beside us, staring into a world crying out in pain with the kingdom of God not yet fully realized. Yet here we are, hearing tonight, very truly I tell you, says Jesus, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. And these works, this reframed imagination, point toward the greater narrative of the kingdom, the greater understanding of the mission of the realized resurrection. Because I really think the more we live into the mission of Jesus' words, the reordering of power, the love of the incarnation, the more we're about working from the boundaries of the world as we see them in the here and now, in some way, somehow, the same loving God that has offered us so much possibility and hope 
will be at work and the kingdom will continue to break through more fully. But do we really believe it? Do we really believe that we tonight are being told anew? Very truly, I tell you, you, the one who believes in me, will also do the works that I do. In fact, will do greater works than these. Do we trust the possibility that the realized resurrection mission, the kingdom of God, might in fact involve us? And do we believe that the mission might not simply be established on the basis of seeing God and the poor and the oppressed, but that it calls us toward personal participation in Jesus' resurrection and the reordering of power in all of our systems? Do we believe in the realized resurrection in such a way that we recognize we can't be a people of Jesus' resurrection if we only believe in our own plight? Do we believe that the same spirit Christ gave to his disciples, the advocate, continues to call and shape us and form us, even from the very pits in which we find ourselves, recognizing that it is the call and the spirit shaped in community, community-like Emmaus way, where a mission that seems impossible and incomprehensible can actually start to flower? Or do we think to ourselves, the realized resurrection is nice, it's been a great four weeks of this, you know, series, and the notion that we are to do greater works is nice, but our world is too far gone, and our actions really can't have that much impact. Or, do I, do you, do we, trust the truth found in the resurrection in such a way that we recognize we're called in the here and now to imagine and dream and believe ever anew about the mission, about the very kingdom of God, even when the mission seems impossible and incomprehensible given what lies before us. I don't know completely where to begin as I, as we, continue to grapple with the realized resurrection and mission and what that means in our lives and in our world. I think about it a lot, but I'm not totally sure what step to take out of God's great love for me, how I live into God's commandments. But I do know that I have found and I continue to find Maggie Smith's poem, Good Bones, to be a really important place for me to start. So I'm going to read it tonight as a prayer for us as we figure out what the heck it means to be a realized, resurrected people living more fully into the mission of God. Hear now her words. Life is short, though I keep this from my children. Life is short, and I've shortened mine in a thousand delicious, ill-advised ways. A thousand deliciously ill-advised ways that I'll keep from my children. 
the world is at least 50% terrible. And that's a conservative estimate. Though I keep this from my children. For every bird, there is a stone thrown at a bird. For every loved child, a child broken, bagged, sunk in a lake. Life is short, and the world is at least half terrible, and for every kind stranger, there is one who would break you, though I keep this from my children. I am trying to sell them the world. Any decent realtor walking through a real shithole chirps on about good bones. This place could be beautiful, right? You could make this place beautiful. Amen.
So I know I sometimes give more um, more introduction than that to confession and absolution, but to me that, that one just sort of sat on its own as a confession. This is a song, uh, our song of absolution is one that Ben has been bugging me to do for a long time, and I didn't know it, um, but he kept telling me, he's like, oh man, you gotta do this song, this will be great. And, um, and so I finally, Soren took a nap on Friday. That was incredible. So I got to listen to a song. And so, so I was like, yeah, that was what we were waiting for for the last eight months. Soren could nap so I could listen to it. Um, no, but this is, a, this is a great song, Ben. Thanks for, thanks for uh, showing it, shooting it my way. Um, Damien Rice, he, he's, I believe he's an Irish, an Irishman. Um, I think that's right. Is that right? Does anybody know? Yes. Okay. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> so you probably all know this song. I feel like it's brand new, but you guys have all heard this a million times. So I'll need you to sing because I've, I've only been listening to it for a couple days. Okay. 
Soren finally took that nap. <laughs> so, if we trust Maggie Smith's reckoning, we're living in a 50% terrible world. Which does seem like a little bit conservative of an estimate. I mean, much of the time, anyway. And, but on our good days, we would like to be. And the Easter ending of Jesus' gospel we're all captivated by seems to be asking us to be the folks who focus our attention on the top half of that distribution, Right? Where, where to find it breaking through, how to tend and foster it, how to believe that's the part that's waxing and the terrible part is on the wane. And like the property-conscious denizens of a gentrifying Durham we are, we know how to play the realtor, to find and sell the upside of the unloved and the unlikely, to believe that the broken could be recast as beautiful, Right? In fact, at times we're so good at selling ourselves the world that we distrust our own ability to do so. Is it really as hopeful as all that? I mean, if the problem's this entrenched, why should the answer be that easy? Who's this hope really available to? Who's this good news really good news for? So we know the imaginative move towards the hope. We know it well, perhaps too well. And we've been asking ourselves for these four weeks... How do you make such a thing real in a way that could overwhelm even the nagging convenience of our own well-resourced imaginations? And it's a time-honored challenge, and it's not an easy one. And Annie Dillard reminds, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Well, there's no one but us, and there never has been. And to borrow some prophetic words from a uh, religious coalition board member... Effie Steele, we are the ones we've been waiting for. She'll say that to any gathered crowd and mean it every time. And I think she's right. And so we look to imagination to act and believe as if, at least just long enough to get a glimpse of what that might be, 
and let it inspire and light our way into mission that would make this kind of radical imagination more believable and more real. And it's looking for that glimpse of a realized resurrection that we turn again to our open table, the same table we practice and turn to every week, the table celebrated by Christians all over the world. And as Tim reminded us a few weeks ago, the same table that held central focus in Christian communities grappling with this same resurrection conundrum 2,000 years ago. Having thrown all in with a revolutionary healer, God-man who promised to do anything they asked in his name, and was then ceremoniously executed by the same state they hoped he'd overthrow, and then conquered death itself only shortly before leaving them to figure out what it all meant. They turned to a radical table practice of sharing bread and wine across barriers of economics and social class and ethnicity and identity, and declared that to be the center of a new community shaped around a world-altering story of an incarnated, crucified, resurrected, and world-redeeming God. And for us, having thrown in behind that same story, looking to it for a sense of mission in a 50% terrible world, and knowing we're the only ones left, and trying to derive a new imagination, believing that we can do greater work still than these, we turn from our particular place to this table practice. And we declare it to be an open table, a place where the margins are drawn near, And where the boundaries are blurred, where we serve each other, declaring interdependence in a culture that finds that ridiculous. Declaring our mutuality as co-ministers as necessary to our life together in community. Where we serve each other and where we declare a world that looks like this. A world that looks like this table is as immediate and simple and tangible as looking into someone's face and breaking bread and saying the body of Christ broken for you and pouring wine or juice and saying the blood of Christ shed for you. And we come to that table tonight as people who have wanted to be trusty and true but fell short somehow most every time and who never wanted to be withered into ugly things we can sometimes be. And if all that you are is not all you desire, then come to this table. Come overwhelmed by fear at a terrible world. Come with love for those on the margins that you don't quite know what to do with because it seems so far away, those margins. Come expecting to find friends who bring you joy. Come expecting to find some folks with whom you're sure to disagree. Come with your imagination freed. Come with your imagination closed to the threat that comes at imagining that such a world could be possible and that we could perhaps lose what we're hoping to gain. Come bring your sorrows, sing your song, come with your best treasured imagination of what the hope and mission and community of a Christian gospel could be, and then let yourself be wrong. And let it be better than that. Come and craft your little pixel in Luke's tapestry of this community looking for common cause, come and let this table shape our imagination pixel by pixel of what could be and how that can spread and who might be included in it and what a resurrected world that was shaped like that could look like. Come however you are. Just come. Welcome to the table.